the Pattern Podcast. Make left traffic, clear for the option. I'm John. I'm Chris. I'm Brad. And I'm Mark. And we are the In the Pattern Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of our little podcast we like to call the In the Pattern Podcast. We got the whole gang on tonight. Coming uh, from the frigid East Coast, John Conway. How's it going, man? Hey, it's going pretty good. Uh, you know, it's just gotten cold relatively recently. Uh, past past week or so, it got really cold, but uh, no snow yet. So I'm kind of disappointed. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that's it'd be nice uh, to have, but uh, I'm not interested in it. In the West Coast, we got uh, Mark Lacoste. How's it going over there, Mark? It's very good. So it's probably about a balmy, I don't know, 46 degrees here. But uh, as we record here on, uh, what is this, Monday night? Yeah, Monday night. So, yeah, it's nice and clear. I love it. Although it's not as good as uh, Maui was two weeks ago. Ooh. However, we will go back to that. <laughs> it sounds nice. In the north-central uh, part of the United States, up in Minnesota, we got Brad Kane. What's going on up there, Brad? It's pretty balmy up here, too. Uh, 37 degrees. It's <laughs> a lot warmer than uh, last week's six. Wow. Single digits, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's that time of year. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the good news is it's dark at, like, you know, five. Oh, yeah. And you've had a little bit of snow, but not much, huh? No, most of it melted today. It was really sad. And, uh, of course, I'm Chris Holub, and I'm coming from sunny Arizona. However, it's currently raining, but uh, I'm sure we'll get over that pretty soon. I was actually up in uh, uh, Prescott um, on Saturday, and uh, we saw a little bit of snow up there. But, uh, yeah. Oh, actually, it did snow uh, down here in Phoenix, uh, like over by some friends of ours' houses, about, I don't know, less than 10 miles away to the north of us. Literally a little, just a little skiff of snow, enough to cover the ground and the cars. And people were, you know, uh, you know, making uh, making snowballs, and some people made some little bitty miniature uh, uh, snowmen out of it. And then, of course, it was gone in like an hour and a half. But uh, yeah, that was about, I don't know, two weeks ago. Kind of funny. That's cute. <laughs> Isn't that special? Uh so, anyways, here we are, episode uh, 19. Um, I've actually uh, been lucky enough to get some uh, get some flying in, and um, be glad to talk about that. And and uh, and um, Brad, you've been uh, continuing with the I- IFR training, right? Yeah, not as uh, not quite as rapid as I would like, but it's still coming along. Mm-hmm. S- still managing to keep current. Yeah. Yeah. How about uh, how about you other guys? You uh, you guys have been trying to uh, at least keep current? John. No. <laughs> John. No. Neg- no. Negative. Hey, hey, no, you know what? I tell you what, I've been flying the past two days a lot. <laughs> from? 
from my iPad. Mm, I was going to say, sim time doesn't count. <laughs> quadricopter that I have. Hey, wait a minute. It wasn't sim time. Ooh. I was flying a real quadricopter. I saw that. You got that as a gift from your uh, office? Yeah. Nice. Christmas gift. Those are cool. Yeah. It's freaking awesome. I was, uh, I was, I have a little, kind of a little field thing outside in front of the house. So I was flying that out yesterday because it wasn't too bad out. And, um, yeah, I, uh, I've been flying it around the house, scaring the crap out of the puppy. But um, it's it's pretty cool. You, I've been flying it from the iPad and the uh, Android, my my phone, and I seem to like it on the iPad a little better. But it's really cool because it's got all the cameras and and um, it just like if you don't do anything, it just sits there and hovers. Now, is that the AR drone? Yes. Or it, okay. Those are so yeah. cool. I want to get one of those. So yeah, I can guarantee you, it'll be at Oshkosh next year. <laughs> That'll be cool. Um, yeah, I've seen a lot of videos of those. They look really cool, um, and not all that expensive, but a little bit, little pricey. But uh, pretty cool that it integrates with the uh, with the cell phones and whatnot. Yeah. So you're ready for your uh, uh, quadcopter check ride, I guess. Yeah, totally. Not not quite actually. <laughs> it's really easy to fly, but at the same time, it's still kind of difficult, especially in tight spaces like in the um, in the apartment. So today, I was kind of practicing trying to get it through a doorway without hitting the sides of the doorway little hard because it's got a lot of the you know stabilization stuff in it but it wants to move around and i don't know if it's the way the air currents are when it gets to the doorway or something i don't know it was uh turning out to be difficult but yeah i've been getting pretty good at it but that's about the only flying i've been doing um i uh i don't know when i went out of currency sometime last month um i just have not had the money the time and with the way the flight school's been with the planes being out and um, I think they're back in now, but the one plane's only available like three days a week and usually they're all booked and then the weather kind of got crappy for a while. So it's just, it's a mess. So now I, I probably sometime next year looking more like February when I'll finally be able to hopefully get back up if I can, um, I might just get checked out in something different. Um, since I'm going to have to go up with an instructor anyway, I might as well just go and get checked out in something cool. So we'll see. Yeah, it'd be uh, worth at least uh, getting checked out in a different plane so you got a few more options. I was thinking about uh, yeah. doing the same myself, uh, just heading over to West Wind Aviation over there at Deer Valley and getting checked out in one of their uh, 172s. The hard part about that is then you've got to maintain currency twice. Ah, I mean, good point. So you end up going, oh, okay, I got to go fly because otherwise I'm going to have to do another checkout, right? Because after six months, usually you lose your your ability to fly at that particular FBO. Mm-hmm. And then you let, you know, then you're like, okay, now I got to do another, I got to go for another flight at this other place, you know, f- find the time, schedule it and go, even if whether I want to or not, uh, just to maintain currency at, at two spots or in two different kinds of aircraft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so Brad, you're you're in a club, right? Right. I'm in a flying club now. How, how do they handle that? I mean, if you get checked out in, say, an Arrow and an Archer, how does your club handle it? So it descends. Um, if you get if you get checked out, well, so we the Arrow, the Archer, I'm sorry, the Archer, the Challenger, and the Warrior are all basically the same. If you get checked out in one of them, you can fly um, all, any of the three. Uh, when you move up to the Arrow you get uh, a new it's a it's a separate rating because it's a complex and that's 
primarily because of the insurance, the way the insurance works. Um, if you get it, it, and if you, as long as you maintain currency in that plane, uh, which I think is three hours every 180 days, it uh, uh, you you don't have to get checked out again by a club CFI. Um, and then, uh, like I said, the other three are the same. And then our, our last plane is the Cherokee Six, and it works just like the Arrow. Um, we're, now we're also about to sell, uh, I think, the Challenger, and uh, and buy a second Arrow because the demand has been so much higher uh, for the for the retractable, higher performance plane. Cool. So now, so now something like that though, it, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be one way compatible? If you're checked in the Archer, you you still need to go get checked out in the Arrow or the Cherokee Six. It, yeah, it is. If you if you maintain currency in the Arrow, you're downward compatible. There you go. That's kind of what I was getting to. Yep. Yeah, and there what are some that? there are some people who commute to different parts of the state every week, uh, it, primarily in the Arrow uh, when they can get it, and that works out really well for them. I wonder if that works. Uh, I have to check with my flight school, and I wonder if that'll work for the G1000 down to the steam gauge. I, that's a totally different question. Uh, all of our planes, yeah, I know it's different, but I'm just um, I'm intrigued because I mean they're both 172 SPs, so they're the same plane. It's just different avionics. So mm-hmm, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because uh, they're they're so different, I would I would not be surprised if it wasn't uh, if they weren't compatible. But I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised either. It's just a question I'll have to ask them because I don't know. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to go get checked out in or what I'm going to do. Go for the cheaper one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was also looking at. Um, oh, what is it? Uh, Tipton Airport has. Uh, um, well, they have a flight school. They also have a flying club that you you can buy into to fly the same planes, and they fly cicadas down there. Oh, nice. Fairly cheap. I like those so, planes. I was I was thinking about checking it out. Um, so that's kind of one of the things on my radar. I don't know. We'll see. How much are the the G one thousand one seventy twos that you? What do they run? Uh, it's the same as a regular one seventy two. It's uh, one forty five fifty. All right. At uh, West Wind, they have like uh, two thousand. They have a few. Two, they have like four two thousand sixes. One seventy two S's. They're not SPs. One seventy two S. G one thousands for a one twenty nine. And they got and they got one seventy two R's G one thousands for one twenty four. Wait, one seventy two R with a G one thousand? Yeah. Is that oh no, I flew the P, never mind. They have one seventy two N's and P's that those are nineteen seventy eight, nineteen eighty two respectively, and they're ninety nine bucks an hour. Nice. Mm-hmm. The arrows are one forty nine. Yeah, I like those uh, Socatas. Those are pretty cool. Always. Look. Yeah, I think they were going for either ninety five or one something. It was it was right around one hundred dollars. Um, and I I can't remember if that was if you uh were, were a bonded member or not, but it was uh it was still fairly cheap. So, um, actually no, bonded didn't matter. It was dues or not dues paying member or not. I think the dues were like one hundred and ten a month. So. I'm I'm definitely really looking at the flying club, but it's going to be a matter of am I going to fly enough throughout the the next few years to make it worthwhile? Because I got a lot of stuff going on around here coming up soon, so we'll see. Yeah, that's the big thing. Got to get your money's worth out of it. 
Yeah, there's. I want to get my money's worth. No kidding. There's a there's a lot of guys in our. It kind of works out uh, in a way uh, like a uh, like a gym, you know, where everybody joins up into the gym and only half the people actually go, and the other half are just sort of paying for the the first half. Mm-hmm. It it seems to work that way with the flying club too. There's a lot of guys who signed up, uh, who aren't actively flying very much, uh, if at all. Like my uh my buddy Dean who I go fly with in the little uh, Cessna 140, you know, he's uh one of three owners in that plane, um, but if you check the logbook, he is 90% of the person that actually flies it. Uh, mm-hmm. one guy probably hasn't put his butt in the seat, you know, five times in the last two or three years. Um, another guy is like maybe once every three or four months at at best. So it's almost it's just mainly it's him and and they still split everything three ways and like last year and even this year he's like look you guys are hardly touching this thing so I want to divide this thing up based upon how you're flying it as far as the annual goes you know um, so you know I'm gonna take care of like ninety percent of it and uh, and they're like no 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 that's it, that's all on us you know. Uh, we didn't fly. That's our fault. You know, we're still responsible, and so they didn't let them do that. Although we offered, but which is pretty nice. But um, but yeah, it's it's nice to know that you know you have three people paying for an airplane, yet you're the only one who actually ever touches it. Yeah, when you're when you get to share the the fixed costs, right? The you know the the hangar and the insurance and the rest of it, right? And, um, and then you only pay usually you know you sort of pay the the operating costs based on your actual usage yeah they only just they they don't even do that it, the, the plane's been paid off for years and stuff so uh the only thing he does is they put gas back in it when they're done with it and um there's no hourly uh fee for for flying it um they just take care of the maintenance as it comes along three ways it's been pretty uh pretty good it's tough. It's tough to get <clears throat> the right set of guys that are like-minded that will treat this very responsibly, you know. And um, so you're not always fighting with one person or another to get their portion from them or whatnot. He's had he's had such great luck with these couple of guys over the last uh, I don't know ten years that they've been together on this plane. Kudos to them. Let's see. We'll go ahead and move on. Who wants to go first? Anyone have anything else? Uh, specific to cover i've been having some interesting flying times um that i've had a couple instances uh where i've gotten into some kind of interesting situations um <clears throat> the probably the most recent one was uh well one of the most recent ones was i was uh, going to take a plane out for a quick night flight and uh i have uh, it's cold here right and uh so the so the heat's generally on and I carry a portable carbon monoxide detector, uh, which I clip onto my jacket when I fly. And I was taxiing out to the runway, and it went off for the first time ever. And hmm. to the point where I was like, huh, that's that's really unusual. And I pull it, pull it off, and I look at it, and it's got a number on it that's, you know, fairly high. But I don't – I'm not a doctor, so I don't know how many parts per million of carbon monoxide are bad for you. And uh, I'm at the I'm at the spot where I'm going to do my run up, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm going, 
you know, there's really no reason for me to take any risks at all on this flight. And so I start turn, you know, I get clearance and I turn around, head back to the hangar and the number on the little display keeps climbing and climbing and climbing. And I eventually get to the hangar and pull the mixture and shut her down and, um, got a pretty tremendous headache and, uh, pulled the, put the plane away. And, and it was interesting because I was impaired enough just from that you know, less than three minutes of being in the cabin, I was impaired enough that I was trying to think of what I should do in terms of letting other people know, you know, am I really sure that, that maybe that it's my CO detector or that it's, or, or could it possibly be something else? I don't want to ground the plane. Um, and I ultimately decided to just email the club as well as put it onto the, uh, put it on the squawk sheet and put the squawk sheet on the do not fly list. Uh, figuring that that would be enough to get people to think twice about it, and uh, sure enough, when the A and P pulled the pulled the muffler off, um, it was completely destroyed. It was completely corroded out from the inside, and had been leaking uh, CO into the cabin for I don't know how long. And I was the third person to take that plane out that day. Wow! Wow! A good call. Good call on that. Um, good job. While I'm at it, let me say that. <sighs> The those little dots that they paste onto the panel, they're worthless. Oh, for the the CO um, the detectors, little, the little passive CO detector. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that they're worthless is is manyfold. For one reason is it didn't change color at all. Mm-hmm. Um, another reason is, do you how often do you look at those when you're in flight? Not Rarely. often. <laughs> Probably pretty much never. And how easy do you suppose it is to look at those in flight at night? (laughs) Impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You can't see it without a white flashlight on it, Uh which is going to annihilate all your night vision. Um, So you're not going to look at it. So you're going to get impaired, and you're going to have a bad day. Uh, So I had, um, at the recommendation of uh, some other folks, had purchased a, a portable CO detector um, that I, that, like I said, I keep clipped onto me, and you know, it may have just saved my life this past week. Where'd you? So uh, what do you have? Yeah, where'd you get yeah. it? So tell us about it. <laughs> I carry. It's a. Uh, it's from CWJ Engineering. It's a pocket CO three hundred. It's like one hundred and thirty nine dollars. It's very cheap life insurance if you ever fly with the heat on. Um, that's the primary time when you're going to get in trouble because you're pulling actively pulling heat through. But you can still get, you know, if there's a crack and the uh, that heat the the ductwork that controls the heat, whether or not the heat comes into the plane is is not perfectly sealed. Uh, you can still get a pretty good dose if that uh, heater muff is is degraded. Um, so yeah, it's a simple little device. Like it's uh, oh probably the size of a stack of quarters. And it's got a little display on it, and you you turn it on, you clip it on, and if the uh, if you get too much exposure, uh, either in a short period or over a longer period, uh, it'll let you know by beeping and buzzing and blinking, and uh, then you uh, you land. Um, in fact, I wouldn't if I had been airborne when it gone had gone off, I probably would have declared uh, an emergency and landed, and just asked for the controller, the control tower, to keep an eye on me. To make sure I wasn't doing anything silly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Good call. I'll have to look at that because we have uh, we have those dots in the plane as well. And... I I can honestly say I don't know what that dot looks like. I don't I don't think there's one inside this archer. If there is, I never really noticed it. It it it's a little plastic thing that has um. It just it has a little circular dot on it. It kind of reminds me of like the stuff you use to test pool chemicals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the strip kind of things. It's it kind of looks like that, but it's like a more of a rectangular thing. A little smaller in a business card, but pretty close to that size. Oh, um, and we have one. It's that on big. the panel. The the dot itself is about the size of a button from your shirt. Yeah. Uh huh. But but the whole thing that it's mounted with. Yeah, I, I think it says something about being a CO detector and. Hmm. I can't honestly think of one that's inside the Archer that I fly then. Um, is that something that's standard equipment? No. 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 Okay, so it, it wouldn't necessarily be there, and I've, and I've just no, missed and, it. <laughs> and they're only good for like 30 days. Oh, Yeah. okay. And I guarantee you the flight school probably never replaces them. <laughs> Didn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Which I'm, I'm kind of surprised with that planes don't come with a carbon monoxide detector. I mean, it can't be that, that much to throw in. The I know that Diamonds and I believe Cirruses do. Uh, I don't know about other aircraft, but the newer ones, I, I know that they do come with it. Because it, it seems like something that's important enough that should just be included. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and if not, especially flight schools should just shell up the... It, it, I don't think they're that expensive even for ones that go in the plane. Yeah, you're talking about um, 100 Not even just handheld ones. Yeah, $100, $150 yeah. item. Um, Maybe a little more than that if it's actually mounted in the plane. Yeah. Maybe three to 500 but it's worth it. Yeah, but versus... Um, Probably get your insurance. Three to $500,000 for a brand new airplane. You're right. What's the big deal? Yeah. Right, not to mention the... Business, all the business that you'll lose by being a cheapskate and not putting a CO detector in, um, because and you know having you know lost a plane and probably whoever was on board it, uh, the, you know you generally you don't walk away from a CO incident. Yeah. yeah. So you got a you were shutting down and you started to feel a headache come on and everything, huh? Yeah, I got out of the plane and I checked the uh, I checked the device just to make sure it was reading zero. You know, just because I was wondering if it was defective or or something like that, and sure enough, you know, it it immediately went to to zero, and then uh, the headache came on, and you know, kind of felt lousy, and that was no good. Did you uh, open up all your windows and close vents and all that good stuff? Well, I not while I was uh, not while I was on the ground. I just turned it around and taxied it back, which um, probably wasn't the greatest decision of all time. I should have just popped the door. Uh, and taxi back with the door open, but this was in uh, in what the the Arrow or the Cherokee or uh, this was in our Warrior. Warrior. Yep. So I could have I could have just shut off the heat and popped the door, but for whatever reason I didn't, and maybe it was already getting to me. Yeah. Decision processes change. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It really it, the very first thing that you lose is your ability to make critical decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why it's such a dangerous thing. Wow. Yeah, I know uh, when we were on vacation over the summer and one of the places we went to was Pikes Peak. Um, and at that altitude of 14,100 and some change, 
you know, after we got off, the, got out of the train at the top, um, we all felt a little hypoxic, and uh, yeah. and it was it was kind of good to know what that was going to feel like if and when I ever felt it in, in an airplane. I you know will hopefully be able to realize what that is uh, a lot sooner now. I've been up uh, over eleven thousand uh, in our Archer, and I really notice it. I really have to breathe hard, mm. uh, you know, to just consciously be sucking in air uh, just to avoid just not feeling good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure that there's a certain amount of hypoxia that comes along with it. Yeah. Um, and I don't. I actually I don't have any oxygen. Yeah. Another one of those cheap items to buy is those little O2 sensors that you put your finger on. Yes. Uh, those things are really cheap. Um, I will say that those will not tell you if you have a CO problem. No, that just tells you your, you know, your oxygen level in your blood. Uh, right. But and not to a super degree of accuracy. But the hospitals use the exact same things. Yep. So yeah, so if you're flying high, those will help you. But if you're uh, if you're thinking that you might have a CO problem, those will tell you that of the 30% of oxygen uptake that's remaining in your blood, you're using 98% of it. Um, that doesn't help you anything. You know, it, it doesn't help you because it won't tell you that. By the way, you're 60, 70% impaired. Mm-hmm. Wow. So. Yep. So yeah. So winter flying, it's it's exciting. Um, I learned some more about winter flying. Our our uh, club has a policy that you're not allowed to take out the. Well, I shouldn't say this. You're you're allowed to take out the planes if the temperature is below zero Fahrenheit. Uh, but if you don't have permission from the club president and you destroy the engine, it's on you. Mm. They had an incident. We have um, we have uh, air oil separators in all our airplanes. So the the engine oil that normally would just blow out the exhaust gets. Uh, gets goes out of a breather tube at the top of the manifold and then goes through this air oil separator and most of the oil makes it back into the plane. Um, and it's nice for keeping you from from blowing a lot of oil out through the uh, through the exhaust. But uh, there's downsides to them too. In any case, they they um, they can clog with ice. Mm. And apparently, they had uh, the when we had an uh, i think the same arrow that we have now somebody took it out and uh was super cold and the thing uh clogged up with ice and all of the oil blew out of the engine uh which made for a emergency landing as you might imagine <laughs> yeah and then the engine was completely destroyed oh. uh which was oh, a pretty man. big pretty big expense for the club yeah uh so hence yeah. hence the policy that policy came after that then after that incident mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. um so are all your planes uh hangered then yes and yep, we ha- you have any hangar engine heaters or yeah they're all the engine heaters come out when it gets below about 45 maybe 50 degrees uh and what kind of go ahead what kind of heaters do you have uh they're tannis so they're oil pan heaters so they like the plug in plug in yeah. the plane okay yeah. Yep, they plug right into the side of the aircraft, um, and we've got extension cords that hang down from the top of the hangar, so it's really easy to just grab one and plug it right into the aircraft. Uh, and nice. uh, you pretty much won't be able to start it without that, and even if you did start it, you would destroy the engine. 
because the oil is so thick, it won't be lubricating the cylinders mm-hmm. uh, when it's that when it gets cold. Yeah, we used uh, we used little propane heaters and would heat you know right into the into the cowling. Just you just um, blow hot air into there. Essentially, yeah, yep. Let that run for for a while. I mean, it doesn't do nearly as good a job as those plug-in ones because they they'll sit there for hours and it'll be yeah. all nice and ready to start. Yeah, and ours are on. Um, I think they turn on at six in the morning and they turn off at ten o'clock at night or something just to save power because you know the odds that you're going to need a plane at three o'clock in the morning is pretty much zero. <laughs> uh, but maybe oh, and they might turn perfect on, time to fly. Yeah. They might turn on a little earlier than that so that you can get out at six a.m. But uh, it does take That's a while cool. when it's when it's that cold. I mean, they've got they also have blankets on them, and the blankets are shoved into the cowling and, and that kind of thing, uh, just to keep it warm. Yeah. The, yeah, I think we start um, below twenty. I want to say is when no, it's below below like thirty five or something. I think we start doing the preheat. We uh for the Archer I fly it doesn't. Uh, well, first of all, I, it it rarely gets below freezing out here uh, in Phoenix. It's you know not very many days out of the year does it ever hit below thirty two. But uh, um, I suppose I could uh, uh, call ahead and ask uh, um, Cutter Aviation to you know throw a preheater on there for us or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. No one's ever um, informed me of a specific uh, procedure when it's a specific temperature yet, uh, but it might just because might be just because it's not really cold enough to worry about. I don't know. Another thing that's nice to do for the for the avionics is to throw a, a little space heater into the cabin and just heat up the cabin uh, before you turn on all of the gyros and stuff. Hmm. But again, for you, Chris, it's probably not such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Actually, for pretty much the rest of you, it's probably not that big of a deal. <laughs> nope. uh, it really only gets that cold uh, in a few places. It probably doesn't. We have our fair share. Yeah. We have a few days here and there. Yeah, once in a while. But I mean, we still have a lot of the preheating, still a lot of the, the cold weather flying, but nothing that's like, you know, drastically too cold. I don't think we've we rarely ever see anything below zero. Mark is all yeah. is all this foreign for you too? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I, I take that wrong. It, we don't get below zero, but uh, if you want to do any night flying, it's been dropping into the into the thirties here lately. So, oh. eh. but you know, I don't have to worry about preheating my cabin. No. <laughs> no. 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 The other thing that though that you do need to worry about. Um, probably any of you is just when it's when it gets cold at night you uh, you better pack you better dress appropriately. Um, yeah. I wear I always wear boots uh, when it's this cold out because you if you land out someplace uh, especially here when it's really cold it's you know when it's dangerous dangerously cold uh, if you have to walk someplace because you landed out in the middle of a field uh, that's that's going to be rough if you're wearing you know nice shoes or or just comfortable kinds of shoes and not a appropriate jacket and gloves and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, I seriously think about that, especially when I'm flying north over the mountains. And through oh, absolutely. The, through the mountainous areas, it's one of the things that's constantly on my mind while I'm flying is, you know, you're always trying to find where would you be able to land, and when you're in the mountains, 
uh, choices suck. Um, but uh, especially this time of year when when it's going to be you know really really cold out and possibly snowing in in areas not too far north of Phoenix. So yeah, the right the right um, uh, set of clothing and and other gear that you might take along with you is very important. Yeah, and whenever yeah. I fly cross country, I, I carry one of those spot uh, locators. Oh, uh huh. And uh, uh, fortunately, I've never had to, had to use that yet, but it's it's a nice peace of mind that I keep it right in my pocket, so that if I do you know get hurt, uh, I don't have to try to turn around and reach back into my bag and pull the thing out and turn it on and and activate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy talk. Yeah. Well, I think uh, right now we should take a quick break. Yeah, so we'll be back in about a minute. Hi, I'm Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, from the Pilot's Journey podcast. And I'm Stuart Stoll, a.k.a. CFI Stu, inviting you to join us for the Pilot's Journey podcast, where we discuss aviation, proficiency, and most of all, enjoying the journey. You can find us in iTunes or at pilotsjourneypodcast.com. And don't forget to enjoy the journey. The members of the In the Pattern podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with, the instructors they learn from, or the flight schools they attend. Remember, these guys are student pilots, so anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on an aircraft operation is obviously from the perspective of student pilot. You should always consider your own situation, consult your instructor, remember your training, and fly the airplane. Cleared for the option. All right, well, we're uh, back. Okay, yeah, I, I've. Uh, it, it's also uh, in the other joys. It's it's kind of bad weather season here. It's hard to get actual uh, this time of year because the clouds are all full of ice, and uh, it's. I've been trying to learn how to read uh, the different charts to to try to figure out where the tops are or where they're predicting the tops are going to be, and uh, checking pyreps every day to hear to hear where the where the pilots are saying the tops actually are. Uh, because that has a big influence on when you can fly uh, a light, single-engine, non-icing aircraft. Uh, and that's been uh, kind of an interesting educational thing. It's it, it turns out it's just really difficult to predict, although there are some good tools out there, um, but they're they're kind of tough to read. Um, the If you've ever looked at the Ruck soundings, uh, it's, a, it's a great product from the National Weather Service. I think it's from National Weather Service. And uh, notes from NOAA, uh, National Ocean- Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. Anyway, it it, um, it gives you a cross section of the sky, and it kind of gives you the temperature dew point spread um, from sea level all the way up to flight level sixty, I think, six hundred, I think. Um, now about forty flight level four fifty, and. So you can kind of see what the what the dew point spread looks like, what the temperature looks like, and from that you can get some idea of whether or not icing conditions might or might not exist. Um, and other than that, uh, you know, I've had a couple of VFR flights where I've run into uh, run into weather of different kinds and had to make choices about what I was going to do. Um, 
talked a, a little bit earlier about running into some rain, and then most recently I was on a uh, day trip to Eau Claire, uh, which is probably it's about 90 miles from here, uh, home of Lining Kugels, by the way, uh, or Chippewa Falls is, but it's right next door. <laughs> and uh, flying out there, and I'm I'm motoring along, and I'm on flight following, and I'm on my uh, I wasn't on a flight plan, I was on flight following, and um. It saw some snow up ahead, and I'm like, okay. I got closer to it. I'm like, okay, I can see through the snow. It's not a big deal. I motored on through the snow, kept my pito heat on, and uh, no issues. And I'm motoring along a little further, and then all of a sudden I'm like, huh, I can't see the ground past about six miles out. And as I motored on further, it was all of a sudden it was five miles out and four miles out and three miles out, and I'm looking around to see do I have an out? You know, What am I going to do here? And uh, all of a sudden there was another bank of snow that was coming in from the south and I was kind of getting, I was sort of flying down to the apex of a V where the the sides of the V were just IMC with snow. Mm. So I decided I was going to turn around and got on the horn with uh, Minneapolis Center and said, okay, I'm turning around due to IFR conditions. Uh, and heading back to, to Crystal because this is a $100 hamburger run. There's no need to take any chances at all uh, in terms of flight safety. And so they're like, okay, fine, you know, no big deal. Go ahead, uh, maintain VFR. And then I hear somebody else get on who was also on center, who was also flying to Eau Claire but from a, from a different, uh, different place coming in from a different direction that said basically the same thing. It said, since that guy's running into IMC, we're just going to turn around and head back to where we came from too uh, because there's no point. Uh, so it was interesting just to hear that, you know, sometimes just giving that little cue. I could have just said, hey, I'm turning around and returning to, to Crystal, but just giving that little cue of, the, of saying that, you know, there's IMC in front of me and I'm not going to enter it um, was enough to give some other pilots pause and get them to turn around and head back uh, and help them to, to make some decisions too. Uh, that was a. It, it was just an interesting experience. Um, yeah, that and uh, came across uh, weather. What was it? Sunday, Saturday. I flew uh, another kind of hundred dollar hamburger run, um, and uh, just little thin wisps of not quite cloud, but but still visible moisture in the air, and uh, had to descend through those and uh, kind of ascend back through them. And and while I was I was VFR because I could see, um, I could see through them, uh, but it was, it was some sort of a very, very thin layer. Um, uh, but I, as far as I could tell, it would be legal for cloud clearance because it was, it was literally just wisps of moisture in the air. I wouldn't qualify them as clouds. I don't know what the cutoff point for that is, but I don't think that this was it. Um, and, uh, I, was glad that I had the gauges in front of me just to make sure and um, uh, motored on through it. And sure enough, the plane didn't care. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's kind of what I've been up to. I've also been, uh, I've done a little, just looking at making a couple of longer trips once I get the, the arrow, uh, get my arrow rating and my IFR, finish off the IFR and thinking about ways to do some of the longer trips uh, with family and uh how to keep people from getting bored out of their minds or, or clawing at the door to get out of the aircraft. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's something we have to share. (laughs) This, this just happened to be so perfect timing because 
Jason just posted this. Yeah. And I'll say since I since I cut and pasted it. We're talking about icing and flying and bad weather. Mm-hmm. Jason Shepard just posted on Twitter. I once ate a popsicle while flying. That's the extent of my ice flying in Florida. <laughs> it was just uh, it was just perfect. I read that. So I'm on mute laughing out loud because Brad's talking about IMC and crappy weather. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, yeah. Chris and I are like icing. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, you can still get it there. Just got to go up a little ways. Mm-hmm. Hey, you can get it here in June. I mean, June and July. It's you've got to be at altitude. But yeah. you know the lapse rate will give you icing anywhere you anywhere you go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was just funny. Yeah, that, funny. that was great. I was seeing. I was watching. I was watching the same thing on Twitter at the same time too. So I was like, I was thinking the same thing in my head. Good timing. <laughs> well, that's the extent of my stories. Good stories. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. <laughs> I would. Uh, I would not like to encounter icing. Thanks very much. I'll pass on that. I don't want to encounter icing or carbon monoxide. So, um, yeah, fly safe, stay out of it. The icing, avoiding icing is pretty easy as a VFR pilot. Um, unless you get caught in freezing yeah. rain, you're pretty much safe. Yeah, stay out of the clouds. Any any visible yeah. moisture. But how tempted are you to actually punch through a cloud when you're VFR on a beautiful day? Yeah. It's tempting. Yeah. It's really tempting. <laughs> They're so know. pretty and puffy and <laughs> no. And I'm gonna punch a hole through it. <laughs> my uh a friend of mine actually, he um right after he got his private, his instructor said, Once you get your private, you're my first student, he's like, I'll take you on a on a flight. So they took a um one of the twin engine pipers, uh I think it was a A Seminole? Um Seminole, yeah. And uh so they took it and uh they followed IFR and went down to Richmond from uh, Bowie, Maryland. And uh, uh, my friend said he had such a blast because the whole time they're they're dodging and punching through clouds on this IFR <laughs> route. And he just said it was the coolest thing he ever did. Well, you find- so ever since then, I've wanted to go on an IFR flight where we were just, you know, punching through clouds. Like, like, you know, just the small little clouds. Mm-hmm. Well, you finally get a sense of how fast you're going and stuff, right? You know, because these uh, yeah. clouds are whipping past and through you, you know. Or you're through them. Yeah. 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 Um, kind of segue from that or speaking of that a little bit. Um, so I, I finally got a chance to take uh, my whole family uh, for a flight for the very first time since getting my license. So that was quite a bit of fun. Um, we were actually planning on, on – I was wanting to fly him up to uh, Payson for uh, uh, lunch. I planned on breakfast, but I actually had to work in the morning, so <clears throat> I turned into lunch. But um, the weather up there started kind of sucking, and there was like three different layers of clouds, and and uh, the winds were kind of picking up. So rather than scrapping the whole thing, I wasn't about to do that because it's a rarity that uh, we all four of us have, you know, enough time off together to do something like this. One of us is working. My my oldest daughter works uh, quite a bit for. A 16-year-old, well, now 17, but um, so she works quite a bit, like 20 hours a week. So, like I said, trying to find time has uh, been a little difficult. So, anyways, I just decided. I said, okay, well, let's do this. Let's just fly over to uh, Chandler uh, for lunch. <clears throat> so I met them all at the airport at like uh, noon or 12:30 or so, and uh, my buddy Dean and his wife Sally were going to fly over there and meet us and have lunch with us, and then and then uh, we're going to come back. So. Uh, Chandler is, 
you know, not far by air, by air. It's only like maybe an 18 minute flight. Um, but, uh, you have to, uh, well, you don't have to, but if you want to go more or less in a straight line, you, uh, fl- uh, uh fly across, uh, Phoenix Sky Harbor. So you got to, uh, transition the Bravo. So <clears throat> anyways, um, so I get them all in the, in the plane and, and pre-flight the plane and give them all the instructions of, uh, what we're going to do and what we need to do and so forth. And, uh, you know, my wife, she thinks it's so fun to make fun of me when I start using terms, um, that she doesn't know. And, and it's funny, my, my daughter Madison did the same thing when I, when, when she flew with me for the first time. But, uh, you know, when I yell out the window, clear pop, uh, clear prop, you know, she go, she's asking, who are you talking to? You know? Like anyone that'll listen, you know, the people who I can't see. <laughs> yeah. Anyone within my voice, that's who needs to be listening. Um, and then, uh, so we get ready to, uh, take off and they're all gabbing and stuff. And I tell them, okay, guys, I need a sterile environment for a few minutes while I'm, while I'm taking off and, uh, and getting everything situated. And so she always makes fun of me talking about a sterile environment, you know, cause that was my terminology that I used for it at that time and she's the nurse you know so <laughs> so yeah as i said the nurse thinks it's funny mm-hmm. okay doc mm-hmm. no problem right <laughs> do you have a crew isolation switch on your uh yeah i on your panel which i didn't use until the flight home uh but on the flight over there um they were just you know they were just being quiet for me because by the time from the moment you take off from deer valley Switch over to Phoenix Sky Harbor uh, or uh, Phoenix Approach. Leave them. Um, get um, get Adis for Chandler, and then you're on with Chandler. So you're never without talking with somebody the whole time that you're over there because right. it's that quick of a trip. Yeah. Um, so they didn't get a lot of chance to talk and discuss things. But one of the things was that um, as we were um, going through the Phoenix Bravo is that they cleared me through the east transition and I've did the Phoenix Bravo I don't know four or five times now but it's always been the west transition so this was new to me and and then on top of that uh at 4500 feet where they wanted me to be which is typical for this um we were very close to clouds and I said to my wife I go wow this is about this is about as close as close to clouds as I've ever been or the first time I've been this close to clouds, she goes, don't ever tell me that it's the first time of anything while you're flying a plane. <laughs> I was like, yeah, good point, I guess, huh? Yeah, but that's the nice thing about being in the Bravo is that you don't – the cloud – you just have to be clear of clouds. Yeah. As long as you're clear of clouds, there's no uh, there's no other restrictions. Well, I, I, that's one of the things I was worried about was, was that, wow, I, as I was creeping up on 4,500, um, I'm like going, man, are they going to put me into these clouds or not? And and one of the things the um, – uh, uh, one of the things that the air traffic controller said is that uh, four Mike Alpha just confirmed four thousand five hundred. I said, "Yeah, I'm getting there," <laughs> because you know I was just kind of creeping up on it, you know, instead of like, you know, punching up there as fast as I can. And um, one of the things I was actually surprised about was the performance with all four people in the airplane. Um, you know, the, the weather was perfect; it was nice and cool. But uh, I got up to sixty and was off the ground in a hurry and. And climbed out at like 800 feet a minute with four people in the plane, no problem. And even though it's a four-person airplane, you know how that is. 
Mm-hmm. You know, some four people, four person airplanes, you know, barely take two people and two and, and a couple pieces of luggage. So um, I was uh, happily, happily surprised about that. So uh, so anyways, we um, get over to uh, um, Chandler and um, come in for my landing and I did a real nice landing. And my wife says, but the but the microphone didn't pick it up. You know, she goes, that was a good landing, huh? And I go, what? I could hear her say it outside of my headphones, but I couldn't hear her say it through the microphone, you know, and I'm recording their flight. And I go, <laughs> I go, what? She goes, it was a good landing. I still couldn't hear. Her. I said, I still couldn't quite hear you speak up a little louder into the microphone. She goes, it was a really good landing, huh? I go, oh, yeah, that was a pretty good landing. <laughs> so, uh, well played. Had to, <laughs> had to get that on, on, uh, on record for sure. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, the wife. But she wouldn't know the difference. Yeah, I, you know, she knew it was it was pretty smooth, you know. <laughs> one of the things that she said. I'm sorry, I had to. Yeah, one of the things that she uh, said though was, um, I uh, she goes, I wish uh, she goes, why don't you take this much time uh, with the car before you drive it? I go, yeah, like I'm gonna walk around the car for 15 minutes looking at everything before I drive it, you know. I can always probably should. I can always pull over to the side of the road. It's a little more difficult once you're in the air and there's something that goes wrong, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So we we went over there and and Dean and Sally were already there, um, so they saw us come in and uh, we had lunch. It was kind of funny that they closed down for lunch at uh, I don't know, I guess uh, two o'clock, and it was it was probably a quarter to two when we when we walked in the door. So uh, we kept in there a little bit late, but uh, had a nice little lunch. And then um, coming home. Um, I had my oldest daughter, Christina, sit up front, and my wife, Michelle, and Madison sit in the back. Madison's already was up front with me and got to fly on that trip back from uh, Flagstaff a few weeks before that. So uh, Christina sat up front, and on the way back, instead of uh, going back through Bravo, we flew on the backside of South Mountain and came around through uh, Glendale and took a little bit more of a scenic route, and I let her uh, fly it quite a bit and we flew over top of like uh, our kids' school and our house and uh, some stuff like that. My wife saw her work from, from the air and, and then brought it back into Deer Valley for uh, another nice landing and and, uh, and that was about that. They enjoyed it. I hope, I hope they liked it enough to bug me to go fly a whole lot, but uh, they haven't so far. <laughs> All my wife ever cares about was, okay, now how much did that cost? Mm-hmm. That's... <laughs> That's the typical question every single flight. Yeah, but you got to take her to like L.A. Mm-hmm. and then you ask the question about how much did this cost. Mm-hmm. A whole lot. It's a lot less than it would cost to fly the four of you on the airlines with baggage and everything else and rental, you know, mm-hmm. and and it takes less time and and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, that's true. It can take less time. Yeah. Well, it would definitely take <laughs> less time by the time. You're at the airport an hour early, and you know, being that weather's being that weather's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some spare flight by air, or or Vegas would be a good one for us because that's close. Right? Is it? Mm-hmm. Well, it only takes us four and a half hours to even drive to Vegas. There's a possibility that I may be in Vegas sometime in the next six months. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. Um. Uh, Mike flies. Is, yeah, I know he's out there. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to go up there and see him and see his plane he's putting together. So, um, 
so anyways, that was uh, that was a really good time. I enjoyed that. They enjoyed it. Um, looking forward to doing uh, doing more of that. Um, what else? Uh, at church, um, someone I met is a uh, paramedic on a uh, a life flight helicopter, and it's an Augusta 119. And he was talking to my wife because he's paramedic, she's a nurse, and he was talking about you know flight nurses and. He's like, oh, you should come along for a ride-along sometime. And uh, she's like, no, no way. I'm not interested. I, I would never want to do that, blah, blah, blah. I said, I'm totally interested. I'll go. He goes, okay, no problem. So hopefully he's going to give me a ride on the Augusta 119 sometime. But the the, the drawback is that uh, he leaves from Quartzsite, Arizona, which is like a 110 or 120-mile drive from Phoenix, so he he goes there and he works like 48 hours and then he comes home. So he like works two days straight and then comes home for four and then works two days straight and then comes home for four or something like that. But mm. uh, that'd be fun. Um, that's a pretty good size helicopter. There's a uh, a flight nurse, a paramedic, and a, and the uh, pilot on board. So plus a jump seat. Yeah, well, for the uh, then yeah jump seat and then you got where the patient is. Yeah mm. the. Um, the small, the smaller life flight helicopters that fly around here. Um, my wife has seen those and and talked to one of the um, one of the uh, flight nurses that is on that because one of them also works at her hospital. And uh, so the um, whatever you call it, the board or whatever that you're wheeled in on the gurney or whatever that goes inside of it, you know, um, the nurse basically is practically squatted over your face during the flight other than that for me you know i had another blood run up to flagstaff this time was uh uneventful uh a lot more chilly um it's kind of funny when you're in the in the cessna 140 with dean um and you're at altitude and it's chilly you know my right my right arm or my i mean my left arm is quite cozy and warm uh but my left arm is and left leg are quite cold because they're up against the door so maybe i'll bring a blanket for my right side the next time i don't know no, I I don't know about the heater inside that thing. <laughs> I don't know if we've ever turned if he's ever turned it on or if it just doesn't have one or what. But uh, it's uh it's quite chilly at uh, eight or at eight or nine thousand feet on the way to Flagstaff. See, you'll need that CO detector after all. I know, huh? Might be a yeah. Maybe a good choice. So, uh, my only other thing I wanted to mention was. Uh, uh, my my boss at work uh, is, is his grandfather was a radio operator on a on a B twenty four bomber in World War two, and he has a uh, copy of his logbook. Um, he just basically took uh, um, I don't know he scanned each one of the pages and turned it into a PDF, and um, he sent it to me, and I have the link, uh, and we'll put it in the show notes if you want to go see it. But it's pretty interesting. It's everything from his very first flight in an airplane all the way through the war. It's about, I don't know, two and a half to three years worth of uh, uh, logbook entries. And he did a lot of his training out here in Arizona. So like one of the places he went, you know, for for lunch one day was even Chandler Airport where I went, um, where I just took the family. So it's kind of interesting. I know a lot of the uh, airports that he had went to, but uh, some of the stuff he's talking about was like, you know, a lot of flack over this bombing run, blah, 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 uh, hard landings, just like it was just, you know, matter of fact, you know, um, it's pretty interesting. So if you get a chance, you want to check it out, uh, it's a pretty good read, and um, we'll put it in the show notes for you to see later on. 
Cool. Thank you. Cool, cool. man. Yeah. So uh, what else? Anything else? I put some other uh, uh, miscellaneous subjects in the show notes if, if any of you wanted to go over. Um, I know one of the things I'm kind of sad about is uh, Airplane Easta. Uh, unfortunately, he's yeah. his publication, but we understand he's, you know, as a full-time job with that, that pays the bills and, you know, that's going to uh, absorb a lot more of his time. So unfortunately, we're uh, sorry to see that go. It was yeah. very well done. It was. So did you guys uh, sign up for uh, uh, Sully Sullenberger to uh, be the new uh, FAA uh, uh, head dude or what? What? <laughs> you didn't hear it? I, I did not. You haven't heard about that, John? There's like a petition for Sully. Let's recap. Yeah. Let's recap here. When am I ever online anymore? Oh, yeah, yeah. So you might have heard that there's a, the, the F, there's an opening at the FAA. So I all right. So I yes. know there's an opening at the FAA. I heard all about that, but I didn't hear anything about the Sully. Yeah, there's just a bunch of people saying, "Hey, put Sully in that job, whether or not he wants it, or you know, I don't." But actually, do a good job. You know, who knows? I uh, why I don't know. This guy, great pilot, did an incredible ditching in in into uh, uh, the river, but. Uh, I, it's just like ever since then, he's been God's gift to aircraft for some reason. I mean, I, I don't want to take anything away from him, but prior, prior, if that did not happen, I don't think he would have retired when he did, and he wouldn't have been brought up for this job. So I'm just kind of wondering, what's all the hubbub about with this guy? Unless I'm yeah, missing I think, a whole bunch. I think it's kind of similar to to saying that Chuck Yeager should have been the FAA administrator. Um, you know, just because you're an excellent, excellent pilot, which there's no doubt, like you said, uh, Sully Sullenberger is an excellent pilot. Um, but that doesn't necessarily qualify you to be an administrator of a very, very large government bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're very different skills. Yeah, most definitely. You know, it's a, it's like, uh, uh, some people, um, like in the IT industry, for example, uh, that we're all familiar with, um, some people are just, you know, excellent geeks and can just do their job to a T. But they would make the most lousy managers known to man, you know, because it's a total different skill set, like you said. Right. Well, to his credit, though, he's been he's been doing this for forty years. Has almost twenty thousand hours of flight time. Um, he's worked with the NTSB. He's done a lot of you know, accident investigation stuff. I read, I read a, a bio on him several months ago, but uh, it's not like he's new to commercial aviation or the FAA. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing it. I'm not voting either way. I'm just saying he he has a lot of experience. Yeah, um, and I don't know that he wouldn't be, but I haven't seen any evidence that he would. And those are, you know, those are political appointments. They're very, yes, you know. Yeah. I know a guy who knows a guy. Yeah. You know. It's all about who you know yeah. in, that, in that gig right there. Right, sure. Um, oh, one of the other things I wanted to bring out. I, are you guys familiar with that, uh, that plane crash that happened out here in the Superstition Mountains? It made, like, international yes. news because, unfortunately, six people died. You guys all heard about that? Oh, some kids. I, I kind of heard about it. All right, so just to recap quickly on that. So it's a rock, it's a Rockwell AC69, so it's a twin turbine 
engine uh, airplane. I don't know how many people it holds, six to eight, something like that. Twin turbine or twin turbo? I think it. I think I thought they were turbines. So like um, turboprop? Yeah. Or yeah, yeah. Actual jets. No, turboprop. yeah, yeah. Turboprop. Okay. Yeah, turboprop. Okay. Sorry. Um, so, anyways, um, Dad comes up from um, somewhere northeast Phoenix and, or southeast Phoenix uh, to pick up the kids from, I believe, his wife who he's divorced from, um, and with another friend or whatever, and they they are departing uh, Mesa um, uh, Falcon Field, and uh, so they depart Mesa Falcon Field, and shortly thereafter. Uh, drive it right into the side of uh, um, the Superstition Mountains, and um, it was on film. Yeah, uh, someone has a had a webcam going. I think it was maybe a security cam or something, and from like 17 miles away or something. Maybe it's only seven miles. I don't know. Anyways, it was in the middle of it wasn't in the middle of the night, but it was pitch black out. It was at nighttime, and you just see this fireball erupt, right? And so there was uh, three adults on board and three children. So. All six people died, and it's uh, – I, I don't know if there's going to be a long NTSB investigation about this or not, but it's – in my eyes, it's pretty much cut and dry. It's so easy to see why they flew into that mountain, and if you if you pull up uh, a chart and take a look at that area, uh, the Phoenix-class Bravo um, is right there in that area at uh, 5,000 feet. And just beyond the arc uh, where it stops is those mountains, like within a couple miles. And they flew into that mountain at 4,500 feet. So wow. uh, obviously he was just trying to stay under the Class Bravo and, um, I don't know, didn't pre-flight like he should have and take a look at the charts and as far as the direction that he was flying. And there you have it. You know, It's pretty cut and dry in my opinion as, as far as what happened there. That just doesn't make a lot of sense if he was going to try to avoid the class Bravo. I mean, if he's a, he's a multi yes. turbine, you know, he's obviously got a ton of experience. Why just flight following? I need to get here to here, and they're going to clear him through. And I mean, it's, that's just that's just if that's the case of what it might have been, then that's just stupidity on his part. But yeah, a little laziness there. Even trying to, you know, a, a lot of a lot of high time pilots and my uh, and my. Um, not my flight instructor, but my um, um, DPE, I would say, would be uh, in this classification where you know they do what they can to not talk to anybody if they don't have to. Um, just you know how a lot of older time pilots do that. They just you know sure. oh, I've been flying before radios were even used very much. Well, you know they didn't want to bother with uh, dealing with Phoenix because they are a ways out from the center of uh, the Phoenix class Bravo and and Phoenix uh, uh, Sky Harbor Airport. Air- airport from from mesa anyways and the direction he was going was out of the bravo so i don't know what would be what would have been the big deal there um as far as contacting him if if he was afraid that they were going to reroute him away from his uh current heading or what the deal was but uh yeah it's you know if you if you pull up uh, the chart and take a look at it and it's uh uh f-e-z i believe um yeah, Foxtrot Echo uh, Zulu is the uh, airport for uh, Mesa. Uh, you'll see that uh, what I'm talking about there. 
but but even still, I mean, if this guy's a, a multi-engine turbine pilot, he's probably got his IFR, right? Uh, you would definitely think so. I'm almost positive he did. I'm sure. I, mean, I would he, think he's so. A, he's a commercial pilot. Yeah. So and he's uh, doesn't this guarantee before. an IFR. But why would you not at night, next to mountains like that, not just go IFR? And these mountains don't have in that general direction any kind of uh, lighting on them. There's no. Um, there's no towers or anything like that, so it would be just pitch black. But you know, yeah. Uh, so, so there's a lot of good reasons why. Just to to address that question, why you might not want to go IFR um, mm-hmm. in those circumstances, especially when you're near a Bravo. Uh, first of all, they're going to make force you to maintain at least 2,000 foot uh, clearance, um, which for them, uh, if they're if if you're around a Bravo, a busy class Bravo airspace, they they may route you all over the place, um, uh, just so that you they can fit you into the system. Um, that and and second, I I can agree with the sentiment on this conversation that you know controlled flight into terrain is certainly one of those preventable things. Um, I'm always pretty hesitant to speculate uh, as to as to what the cause of an accident is. Um, just because you, you just don't know. I mean, the pilot might have been incapacitated. The pilot might have might have had a GPS malfunction that was telling him that he had clearance. Um, it, it's really it's really tough to say. Uh, just looking at an incident like that from the outside, um, it's easy to judge, but it's really hard to say uh, because you know maybe, maybe there certainly are plenty of preventable aircraft accidents out there um but the fact that there are plenty of them out there means that they're not that easy to avoid if, if that makes any sense at all yeah i get i get what you're, i get yeah, what yeah. you're saying yeah yeah they, i just uh they estimated that he hit, hit the side of that mountain at somewhere near 200 not or 200 miles an hour um it's just a tragedy and uh no. you know because the only one living well i mean the wife drops off the kids to the ex-husband. He picks up the kids for Thanksgiving, and you know, ten minutes later, everybody's dead in an, air, in, a, in an airplane crash, and the wife's just, you know, with her hands in her head, with her head in her hands. I mean, yeah, it is. It is certainly tragic. Um, we had three fatals Thanksgiving weekend, mm. and uh, you know, two of them look suspiciously like um, visual flight into IMC. Uh, but who knows? Yeah, get their itis. <laughs> could be. I mean, it very well could be. Um, it, just based on the the way that the the aircraft was, uh, the way that the aircraft impacted the terrain and um, uh, and the weather conditions at the time and that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it's just not worth it. You know, if you see stuff like that and you're flying along, just turn around. And if you're not sure about the terrain, uh, you know, climb and confess. Just ask. You know, it it's a lot better to get in trouble for busting the Bravo than it is to fly into the side of a mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, or yeah. or it's a lot better to get in trouble for uh, you know flying into IMC and then have somebody on the horn with you telling you to look at your instruments and climb and, and, you know, giving you a vector to VFR conditions. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's better still if you just stay out of those situations, but, 
uh, if you do find yourself in a situation where you're in over your head, um, it, you know, it, admit that the first thing you got to do is admit that you're over over your head and and figure out how to get help to get yourself out of there. Most yeah. definitely. The uh, uh, the the more I listen to uh, you know, like your IFR training, Brad, and, and my friend talk about it and all those things, the more I really, really just want to go get the IFR. <laughs> Most definitely. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I was always nervous flying at night, um, Me because too. because you're you're motoring along and and all of a sudden bang you're in a cloud and uh, that that was always pretty scary to me. You just all of a sudden have no horizon anymore and and what are you going to do? Um, and uh, you know that that was a big part of it and and then just the reliability of the travel um, is is somewhat higher when you're flying uh, with an IFR ticket. Although this time of year, I'm learning that it's really not all that much better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I could legally fly in those clouds for about five minutes. (laughs) But I think it gives you more flexibility if you do get into trouble, though. Yeah, and and it also gives you a lot more comfort with with the system. Like, you know who to talk to because you're used to talking to people all the time. Right. Um, but but I mean if you if you if you get yourself into a say you file a VFR like you're talking about and you hit that apex of that V, and you know, you know through through contacting flight service that it's it's really not that bad of weather. It's just a low visibility. You have that option now that you can actually call and open an IFR in flight and say I'm going to file IFR to get to this point now. Then you're talking to the right people mm-hmm. to, to vector you correctly, whereas the, the the three of us that are VFR, we don't have that option. I mean, right. You, the, I mean, there, there's special VFR if you get stuck, but I mean, for the most part, you're going to be able to, you know, you're going to have to turn around and go out of the weather. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think I would ever use special VFR, um, even as, well, especially as an IFR pilot, but um, it, it's special VFR is basically legal scud running, right? It's, mm-hmm. we know it's not safe for you to do this, but we're going to let you do it anyway. Um, yeah, it just has bad idea written all over it. True. But, but yeah. I, I, I was, I did one of the, um, the, what is it? The online safety seminars that AOPA has. Mm-hmm. And they talked about, I think it was a Baron that got in trouble and, and they said, basically all this I needed to do was ask for a special VFR to get him back into this airport and, and he neglected to do it. And then yeah. the guy kept asking him, the controller was asking him, Hey, what are you asking me? And all he had to do was say, I need to get a special VFR so I can get into this airport. And they would have, they would have worked with him, but right. But you, you know. have to ask. Yeah. And that there's a Correct. perfect, perfect time to use the special, right. Um, when all of a sudden you realize that the weather is coming down and you have to get back into a Delta and you can't because they can't ask you if you want special VFR. Right. Right. Um, now, if it really so, if it, the other thing is, if it really comes down to it, just declare. You know, if if it, there's that, I, I can't remember which part of the the aim it is, it, uh, like two three one or something, which talks about emergencies, emergencies and urgencies, and it and it actually says in the aim, safety is not a luxury. Take action. Um, and it's like my favorite part of the aim because you you know. It, when you get into those jams, like, like you're talking about with the Baron pilot, you have to realize that you are still the pilot in command. And when, if you declare an emergency, you're going to get whatever you need. 
Right. Um, even if it's below special VFR, um, if that's your, if that's what you figure is the best way out, that's the best thing for you to do. Um, get, you know, get help and get out of the situation. Agreed. Anyway, yeah. there's my spiel. <laughs> I'm sticking yeah. to it. Good spiel. Good. Well, I, uh, I think we've covered a lot here. Um, I would say, uh, do you guys have any, uh, shout outs? KWJ Engineering, makers of the Pocket 300 CO detector. <laughs> uh, best $139 I've spent in aviation. I will definitely check those out. Especially I am going I to as well. I start, I start flying again here, hopefully shortly, but uh, I'll definitely check it out. Is that on the uh, horizon, Mark? I'm hoping uh, not too far after the first year. I, I'm, I'm thinking I might be able to... I've got a couple of uh, couple of contracts that might hit, and if that happens, then I'll I'll finally have some finish the training money. Um, I've also I've also made a couple of uh, inquiries about uh, some 141 programs in the area. Um, I think we talked about it in a previous episode about concurrent training, um, not only working on your private but also working on your instrument. And I think if 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 I get some feedback, the right feedback and the right cost amount I'm, i may attempt to do that cool excellent cool so and yes you talked about that in a previous episode i thought so i thought we did uh, <laughs> again you know it's been so long <laughs> but i was gonna say i would i would definitely check into this uh that, that sounds like a great device to have yeah i have um one quick shout out to um Friend of mine, I know I've mentioned him before, Tim. Uh, he finally passed his IFR check ride. Woohoo! All right. Um, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So that's yeah, got to be a tough one. Yeah. So I haven't actually gotten a chance to really sit down and talk to him and, and hear about it, but I do know he passed. Uh, I also know he had his first sick passenger um, <laughs> yesterday. Oh no! Wow. Yeah, he was doing a a VFR to uh, Cambridge and got a little bumpy. Had his girlfriend and. He is now one headphone, headset bag less. <laughs> the headset oh. bag. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah. The headset bag. out. Ouch. <laughs> uh, yuck. So, yeah. I'll, I'll just say on, on that note, I'd like to thank Alaska Airlines for the six brand new sick bags that I have in my flight bag. Yeah, yeah. I would like to thank <laughs> Southwest for mine. <laughs> I gotta remember to pick those up. I actually went out and bought a set from Sporties. So. Yeah, I got every time we go somewhere, I go, "All right, family, give me the Sarah sick bags." They go, "You shouldn't take yep. those." I go, "We paid for them." <laughs> exactly. I said the exact same thing to my girls. I'm like, "Get all your bags. I need those." They're like, "For what?" I'm like, "Well, primarily for Civil Air Patrol." But I said, "You know, one of these days we're gonna be flying. You may need that bag." They're like, "Oh, good idea." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh man. So <laughs> that was a. Uh, I think that's all I got. Yeah, I can't think of uh, anything else. Anything off the top of my head. Um, so uh, till next time, I guess. So Chris, where can we find you on the internet? All right, you can find me at Chris at InThePatternPodcast dot com or Twitter, my transponder, or YouTube at Cholubaz. That's C H O L U B A Z. And, uh, of course, Google Plus as well, um, Chris Holub. And, uh, Brad, I work for you. Uh, you can reach me at brad at inthepatternpodcast.com, uh, Twitter at Brad Kane, 
my transponder at Kane and Google Plus at Brad Kane. And Kane is spelled just like it sounds. Kilo, Oscar, Echo, Hotel, November. All right, Mark, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at Mark at InThePatternPodcast.com. On Twitter as Student Pilot Mark. That's S-T-D-N-T, Pilot Mark. Uh, on my transponder as Mark Lacoste, and on Google Plus as Mark Lacoste. Cool, and uh, you can find me uh, at John at InThePatternPodcast.com, on Twitter as Pilot Conway. Uh, my transponder should be Pilot Conway as well, and also on Google Plus as um, John L. Conway the Fourth. if you are adventurous. Um, and you can reach all of us at InThePatternPodcast.com, on Twitter at InThePattern, and the My Transponder uh, group page for In the Pattern. We also have a Facebook page for In the Pattern. Um, or you can search iTunes and search for In the Pattern Podcast. Um, go ahead and give us a review rating. Uh, help us uh, um, spread the word and get some other listeners, and um, uh, it'll help anybody um, find us on, on iTunes. Uh, and finally, we also have a Google Voice number. That's uh, 707-PCAST-01. Uh, That's 707-PAPA-CHARLIE-ALPHA-SIERRA-TANGO-01. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Independent Podcast. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Remember, make left traffic and you're cleared for the option. Properly adjust your microphones for optimal lip smacking. (laughs) Blow it out if you have to. Yeah, get the dust off. And, um, yeah. Chris. Yeah. This is an episode 18. Oh. (laughs) My notes said 18, damn it. I wrote those in there myself. Well, and then I said episode 18 for the first two. Why'd you change it to 19? <laughs> I think what you wanted to do was was this. Yes, but I wanted to make a note to Chris so that he knew that I was taking that out. <laughs> what? You Since you talked about them already, you don't need to label them as 19. They're still 18. But they're out for this episode. I haven't talked about those before. Yeah, no, you have. I edited it. We heard all about the blood run, the tailwheel out, and you taking your oh, daughter really? up to pick him up, and then you <laughs> did the shit. aborted takeoff because you were yeah, at yeah. density altitude. Mm-hmm. And then you came back, and you had the wow. guy in the the twin engine yeah, yeah. being like, "I need to turn around now because I'm behind two Cessnas that are slow," and the okay. controller started yelling at him and all that. So, damn, if yeah. we I'm would sh- record on a regular basis, I'm this sh- wouldn't happen. I'm sure that's all. Holy crap! I'm sure that's all fresh to you, John. <laughs> some of us. It is. I just did it this weekend. Some of us haven't heard it in such a long time. Wow. Okay. Okay. Zing. All right. It's a tough crowd. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
See, I thought the last episode I just talked about um, just passing the check right. All right, good. Uh, well, it was in the same episode. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess it was. All right, well, good, because yeah. uh, there's plenty of other things to go over. So we'll uh, start over and we'll take all that out. <laughs> so he says, he said that, uh, he goes, yeah, basically I'm tea- teabagging the patient all the way to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I know. I I shouldn't have said that, but that's what that was his words. Mm. Um, what, there you go again, man. Yeah, Look I, at that. Look at that. It's like three lips max in a row. It was tasty. What can I tell you? And I'm down to the last <laughs> swallow. Between the lips max and that long stall horn that's going to hit <laughs> during that comment. I don't know. Uh, Lip smacking and teabagging. I, I just this is not good. Oh come on! Hey, you know that wasn't together. 